The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Bowen blowing bubbles and Benji's Bohemian Rhapsody. We salute West Ham's Europa Conference League triumph. Also, from golf clubs to golf clubs, we ask, are the Saudis taking over sport? We check in on Spurs as they prepare for Anger management. And intercity coaches, we express thoughts on Pep v Pippo's brother in Saturday's Champions League final. It's the Totally Football Show. Thursday, June the 8th. I make it. Hello, listener. Thanks for joining us. Uh, what, what's in? Uh, who's in today in the studio? Well, I'm looking at Charlie Eccleshire. Hello, Charlie Eccleshire. Hello, James. Also, welcome back, Michael Cox. Hi, James. Michael, it's been a while. It has been a while, yeah. aside from the, uh, the quiz. The quiz. But we won't talk about that. I think we will, probably. Well, you will later. We yeah. will later on, yeah. You were put out by... Uh, Tom Williams, weren't you? He's in the final. Yep. Yeah. Underdog in the final, I'd say. Right. Also put out by Tom Williams in the course of this year's Intertotally, Adrian Clark. Hello. Yeah, see what you did there? Yeah, it was a narrow, narrowly defeated on the on the on the um on the playoff. What's the, what's yeah. the what's what's the phrase? Tybro. The Still a defeat is the phrase. Also joining us today is this man. <laughs> Yeah, not Robbie Savage, that. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, Benji Lagnardo, <laughs> another noted Hammers fan who was at the Eden Arena to witness the Conference League final. He's on his way back via Riga, mm. which, I mean, you know, it's a choice. Quite a detour. So we'll talk to him very, very shortly. He's just locating a quiet nook. And any thoughts you want to just throw in, first of all, on West Ham's triumph? I loved it. I, I We talked last week about how disappointing the Europa League final was. Mm. But this was amazing. And I'd like to issue a bit of a mayor culpa because I've been quite snobby towards the Europa Conference League. Cool. But uh, this was this was great. And I, I, though I would say I have always said that I think it worked incredibly well for a certain level of club. Some will say that's patronising. But West Ham haven't won anything in a long time. Right. And so, and they haven't played in European football before last year for a long time. Yeah, Roma, same thing. They hadn't won a... Well, they never yeah. won a European thing before and, and, and I do think as well, like, with City, you know, City win the League Cup even most seasons. Like, I was looking at this the last 10 years, League Cup, FA Cup, Premier League, only one club outside the top six, big six, has won anything. That was Leicester. So for s- most clubs are in the middle of a trophy drought because it's impossible almost to win a domestic title. So I loved this and I thought the celebrations were amazing. And uh, Moyes with his dad. Mo- yeah, Moyes with his dad. Yeah. Adrian. Yeah, I think that's what it was about last night. It was seeing the unconfined joy uh, among the, the players, the staff, the families, the, the supporters there. It was It was amazing. And I think for those of us that, that don't support West Ham or don't take that much notice of the, of the Conference League, it, it was a it was a wake up call, and I think it's nice to spread spread the winning around. I really mm. do. Just just touching on what Charlie said, and and in this sort of era of financial dominance, and we're going to get to that a little bit later, aren't we? I think we should really celebrate cup competitions and the chance it gives teams like West Ham to win stuff uh, because that's what it's all about. 
and just and seeing that connection between the supporters mm. and, and the team last night was actually amazing. And um, yeah, well done to well done to all concerned. Yeah, Michael, do you want to point out how rubbish West Ham actually were? <laughs> Not particularly. I mean, it was funny because I don't think either side played well, and yet it was quite an entertaining mm. game. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. And I agree. I mean, West Ham they didn't really have much of a game plan with the ball, and I thought Fiorentina, for all their possession play, didn't really create much themselves. Mm. And you think if this isn't right for European final, and you think well, actually it's eighth in Serie A against 14th in the Premier League so mm. it is a mid-table game but yeah I, I thought it was uh, really insane the second half was excellent I thought particularly the way that the goals just seems to completely oh, yeah. change the mentality of both like West Ham were quite poor they scored and then played really well for five minutes yeah, an amazing <laughs> few minutes Fiorentina <laughs> scored completely against the run of play at that point and then they had a really good 10 minutes I thought it was just yeah back and forth really mm. entertaining it was a, it was a, Classic winning goal, wasn't it? I, I love that. I thought, you know, yeah. the high line of Fiorentina just exposed once, you know, fine margin, beautiful slip pass from from Pacata, from Pacatar, who who probably should have done that more this season in terms of that link up with Boeing because he's brilliant at making runs off the shoulder of defenders. Probably haven't seen it anywhere near often enough, but but yeah, it was it was a beautiful way I think to to win the cup final. Well, he did it when it really mattered most, mattered most for folk like Benji Lanyardo, who, as I say, is on his way back from Prague as we speak. We'll find out how far he's got after this. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network and sponsored by LiveScore Bet. You can get the latest football betting odds at LiveScoreBet.com. It's over 18s only. Please bet responsibly and be gambleaware.org. Benji, Benji, on your way back from Prague, where are you right now? Yes, up, up is down, Jimbo. Um, West Ham have won something. I'm in the yeah the children's area of the Riga Airport Business Lounge, and I've just seen a video of uh, David Moyes dancing uh, and sort of wiggling his bum. Just picture that, David Moyes wiggling his bum whilst dancing. We, we've all seen it, Benji. Can you express in words what that movement means to you? Well, I mean, firstly. Surprisingly arousing, actually. You didn't. Ex- I didn't expect that sort of rhythm from from David Moyes. Um, but it's just the it's the abandon of it, and I think that sort of sums up the way a lot of West Ham fans are feeling. It was just so much fun. It was so joyous. We. It was so unfair. We didn't deserve it, <laughs> which feels like the sort of that doesn't usually happen to us. Getting our, our sort of like mini Aguero moment with a last minute winner. Um, it just, it just, it feels amazing. Honestly, this is why, this is why I would encourage anybody new to football to choose a team that are generally a bit shit. Because when things like this happen, it is just very, very, very special. So yeah, feeling great. In the, what was it, 89th minute? How how nervous were you feeling as, as extra time loomed? And then what did you feel as Paqueta put that ball, slid that ball through for Bowen? Oh, well, I think everyone, everyone... Bone's good one-on-one, and it was always. We I, I listened to James Horncastle talking about Fiorentina um, on, on on the last pod, and talking about this kind of high line, and and I, I you know I thought after that, okay, this is going to be a feature of the way West Ham play. We're going to try and thread balls through, and it's got to be Bone. He's the one with the pace, and he can finish. And he hadn't actually done it all night. You know, um, Bone was pretty rubbish in the game. In fact, most of our best players were pretty rubbish. Like Declan was rubbish. Um, Pagatar was very good. Emerson was very good. But Fiorentina were like, yeah, they were, they, they were, they played much better football than we did. Amrabat is, is, is a brilliant player, sort of a bulldog and a metronome at the same time. But no, when Pacatar put it through, you just sort of thought, surely, <laughs> surely not. Pacatar, he's played it through, and Bowen's in! It's up for grabs now! 
Moyes' mission is accomplished! And it was one of those celebrations where I was in shock for about 30 seconds before I realised what, what actually happened. And, I, and, and then for the next five minutes and the injury time, and oh God, it was, it was, it was horrible. But then, then when the whistle went, the place just went crazy. It was really, really special, very special. Benji, you've been a West Ham supporter a long time. You've been through a lot. Yes. I mean, yeah, I mean, compared to sort of, you know, Peterborough away, where I think we drew one all. Uh, which is one of the more memorable championship games. Yeah, two, since I've been a West Ham fan, three relegations, um, some real near misses. There was that. There was the um, Liverpool final, which I don't want to talk about too much because it makes me feel sad. The Gerrard goal, couple of playoff wins. That's been nice, but we've never had something like this. This is we've actually won something. We've actually won a proper cup. Um, so yeah, it's a, it, it, it's a, it's it's the, it's the best it's the best moment in my in my in my time as a West Ham fan. And I think every other West Ham fan would agree, especially the ones that were there that are now all somehow trying to make their way home across Europe. Uh, and I've, I've, we sort of worked out that the um, the cheapest way of getting home was to travel <coughs> six hundred miles in the wrong direction. Um, and, and here we are in Latvia. Very nice. What did what did you do? What were the scenes like after the final whistle? It was just wonderful. So we, so we were in the ground for about a good a good hour, um, and all the kind of players and the players' families were on the pitch. Everyone was sort of serenading Declan Rice and singing Ten More Years, Ten More Years. You know, every player got their song. Moyes was Moyes, and Moyes got got his song as well, which I think is really important. Like you know, what a what a journey we've been through with Moyes this season. You know, myself included. I absolutely at times thought, you know what, his time is up. He's taken us as far as he can, and he stopped hearing the kind of David Moyes songs. Um, and then there he was last night, being you know a, really a, one of the main focuses of all the fans' attention and the songs, and and really encouraging him to enjoy it and lift the trophy himself and. And and yeah, you know he's he's now you know historic as a West Ham manager. Genuinely, he he goes down as one of, if not our best manager ever. Certainly in terms of his track record. I mean, that's Europe three seasons in a row. It's never two seasons in a row has never happened for West Ham. That's now three seasons in a row. Declan Rice was also a, you know a big focus. Him you know as a captain, he's now alongside Billy Bonds and Bobby Moore as as West Ham captains to have lifted to have lifted trophies. So um. If that is the last thing he does for West Ham, then what a what, what a brilliant way to bow out! Yeah, extraordinary. We, next season, are you happy then to be lining up under David Moyes? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, whether 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 there is like a better better manager out there for us that could sort of take us onwards to the next level, whatever. I'm sure that's the case. You know, there's 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 probably loads of managers that might be able to do a better job than David Moyes, but. Who cares? He's earned it now. Like we've got to give him at least a season because he has earned it. He's, you know, he's he he absolutely now is like a historically important West Ham manager. You can't just you know bin him off straight away. Um, and you know that you can absolutely you know, look at the game last night, right? That was two very contrasting styles of football. Fiorentina were actually really good. They played lovely football. They weren't incisive, and that was their ultimately their undoing. And we played, you know, the you know quintessential noise sufferable, got a bit lucky with a handball and then nicked one on the break despite absolutely being the second best team. And that can be hard work to watch all season. And, and, and you know, that's why I do understand why some West Ham fans might still think that we need, we, we need to sort of upgrade on him now. But honestly, he can do what he wants. Let, let, give him, you know, let him sign whoever he wants. Let, just let him enjoy himself. Let him come out onto the pitch at the beginning of next year and get his name chanted by every single West Ham fan because we've got to be hugely grateful for what he's done for us. Brilliant.
and Europa League next year. Hey, you're the first English side ever to win more games in European competition in a season than you actually do in the league. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, 12 in the Conference League, 11 in the Premier League. Oh, that's, that's very clever of us. Yeah, excellent. Nice. Another, little, another cool bit of trivia from last night. Um, Emerson Palmieri has now become the only player to win all three European competitions. And on top of that, <laughs> he won the he won the Euros and he won the Super Cup, whatever it's called. So he's won everything that UEFA have got have got to give. So that, that's that, that's fun as well. But Benji, for you, the greatest night of your life as a West Ham supporter. Absolutely, really special. Feel feel amazing. Brilliant. Have a great trip back, Benji. Thanks, Jimbo. A made-up Benji Lanyardo. Wow. Folks, West Ham become the eighth English club in European competition next year because they'll go into the yeah. Europa League. Villa will have their pop at the increasingly exciting Conference League. Uh, that's exciting, isn't it? Uh, Adrian, you wanted to talk about... Well, I, I don't think we should should just sort of brush it over mm. completely. It, it was really bad. It was such a bad look, wasn't it, for all those sort of... Um, Plastic cups to be raining down on the pitch. You know, a lot of... On that, by the way, you know, fans often complain about, oh, we're not allowed to take our beers into 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 the stadiums. Well, this is the reason why. Yeah. And and if incidents like that continue to happen, then you'll continue to have to, to, to drink up on the concourse. But look, they did injure a player. It was quite a nasty cut on the back of the head. And I think... West Ham were a little bit lucky that the that the ref didn't sort of make more of it or that Fiorentina did, didn't kick up more of a fuss because that was a nasty incident. And um, I do expect now, unfortunately, that, that, that West Ham's fans will be banned from maybe a home game or, or one or two away games next season. I think there has to be a repercussion because that, that was pretty ugly. Thankfully, it all turned out nice in the end and we saw some great scenes, but but that wasn't clever. I think it's worth pointing out as well. The player who got cut on the head was the one who conceded the penalty with a, a you know slightly unfortunate handball, and then played on Bowen for the winner. I mean, I'm not saying there's cause and effect, but <laughs> it's not a great look. Yeah, should also flag up the reports of uh, Fiorentina fans uh, attacking West Ham fans. Certainly, I think uh, one West Ham supporter was hospitalised earlier in the day, so that the whole occasion didn't go off 100% smoothly. But no. But, but they were very keen to tell us in commentary that generally it had been this really great uh, occasion amongst mm. the fans. And, and and Robbie Savage had clearly been huh. very taken. <laughs> with... Was he there? <laughs> <laughs> he'd obviously, well, it sounded like during the course of the day, he'd learnt the West Ham a massive chant. And it had really made a big impression on him because he kept referring to it. Even when this was happening, even when the kind of the bad stuff was happening, he right. was still referring to the fact. But West Ham are massive everywhere they go. Exactly, mm. yeah. So um, it, fair play. It was a kind of boyish uh, enthusiasm and enjoyment that he seemed. I think he was like part of the, part of the group. Yeah, but that, or, it, that seems to be an increasingly common part of kind of football commentary now. I mean, during the the Milan derby. Uh, semi-final on, on BT they kept on going to Rio Ferdinand who was up in the stands presumably for expert insight and he just kept on going cool it's so loud here mm. I've never like just constantly talking about the feeling of being in the yeah. ground rather than actually anything about the game maybe that's what people like I don't know I don't know either Michael it's an interesting trend isn't it anyway that was Wednesday night's West Ham 2-1 victory in the Conference League final over Fiorentina Italian sides 0-2 mm. so far in their uh, Cup final appearances, we'll, we'll talk about Inter's chances of maybe breaking that trend later on. But hey, Spurs have a new manager. We'll talk about that next. 
This is the Totally Football Show, sponsored by LiveScore Bet. With Bet Builder from LiveScore Bet, you can combine markets from thousands of options to create your own bet on the biggest football fixtures in the Premier League, the Champions League, the EFL, and around the world. So if you think you can successfully pick the first goal scorer, the final score, the total number of corners, and whether there'll be a red card, then use Bet Builder from LiveScore Bet to make up to six selections and get a single bet with the combined odds. Or if you can't make up your mind, you can choose from the pre-built quick bet options. Bet Builder from LiveScore Bet. Building a bet just got easier. Find out more at LiveScoreBet.com or by downloading the LiveScore Bet app on Android and iPhone. It's over 18s only. Full account terms apply. And of course, please bet responsibly and be gambleaware.org. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. All right, excitement this week as Spurs appoint the Celtic manager Ange Postacoglu. 72 days after Conte's mid-season sacking, last time they had a 72-day search, it ended in Nuno Espirito Santo. This time... It took them from Thomas Tuchel, who went to Bayern, to Pochettino, who went to neighbours Chelsea, through Nagelsmann, Xavi, Alonso, Arne Slot, who all declined. Charlie, you've written an excellent piece on Postacoglu, and you're very much a believer. So why should Spurs not feel let down by this choice? Because I think he actually ticks a lot of the boxes. Unlike Nuno, who was so, you know, Nuno was someone they rejected at the start. And then basically they were a week away from pre-season and were like, shit, we actually need a manager here. So they got Nuno. Whereas this time, so, so two years ago, it was all about Spurs DNA. This was the buzzword, uh, attacking football. And then they appointed Nuno and there was such an obvious disconnect. To be fair, this time, the buzzword has been culture, improving the culture. And the sense is that they didn't want to go for another big name, deluxe celebrity manager like Mourinho and Conte because that didn't work out so well. They wanted someone who could play attacking football, who could galvanise the fan base and importantly, wouldn't give the sense that he felt he was above the whole thing, mm. which they got a little bit from Conte. And Postacoglu does tick all those boxes. The, the only thing that counts against him, which is a fairly arbitrary thing, is that he's not young. He's 57. But given that managers generally last only a couple of years anyway, I'm not sure how much that really matters anyway. Mm. Like his ideas are original and they're fresh and they're interesting. So I think it's a really interesting appointment. And from speaking to a bunch of people who played under him for that piece... They speak incredibly highly. And, and and there's always, to an extent, you know, if people are going on the record, they're always going to talk fairly positively about the, a former manager. But you could definitely feel the sort of passion and, and how much they, not just his players, but former colleagues and people who've covered him, they really bristle at this idea that this job will be too big for him. Mm. Or that, you know, what's this guy who, you know, he comes in from Japan, to quote Sir Alex Ferguson. Bit I, like, yeah. You know, about Arsene Wenger. And mm. I, I think there is a bit of a sense that, yeah, Australian coaches are looked down on and give the guy a chance. Yeah, he's the first Australian exactly, manager yeah. of a Premier League side. He has had this extraordinary career path 
not just Japan in there, but all over the place. He also, Nugget, in, in your excellent uh, Postacoglu uh, featurette, he played under Ferenc Pushkas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did that come about? He That was when he was at South Melbourne. Um, and he, he also acted as like a bit of a translator for Puskas and a driver for him. And they got very close. And Puskas, he, he says, Postacoglu, that his part of his attacking philosophy comes from playing under Puskas. And he also learned Puskas, obviously, despite being a complete legend of the game, carried himself with a real humility. And that's something that Postacoglu tries to do as well. Um, so, yeah, he was his captain back there. And then he, he had to retire young, Postacoglu, became the manager age 30. And you might remember as well, in the inaugural 2000 uh, FIFA World Club Cup, the one that United pulled out the FA Cup for, mm. and there was that whole uh, fiasco about the Daily Mirror got various celebrities to say it was an outrageous thing. And Beckham wore thongs, that's what I remember. There was that. that. There was all sorts going on. Edmundo played for Vasco da Gama. Right. Mm. Anyway, South Melbourne were the fourth team in that tournament, along with Nakaxa, and uh, Postacoglu was the manager. Oh. And they played Sir Alex Ferguson's Manchester United. And in a portent for what's to come, they did lose the game 2-0, but played a very attacking, we're not going to sacrifice our principles kind of way. And that's that's him all over. Right, and that's what, what he does. Michael, have you seen a lot of Postacoglu's Celtic? Are you, or his Australia? Or? A little bit. I mean, over the years, a little bit of his Australia side. I mean, I think he's an interesting guy. Charlie's, Charlie's article was very interesting about him. I can understand why some fans might feel a little bit underwhelmed because I think Tottenham is still a very big draw. But I think there's been a slight shift in terms of the identity of manager that the top clubs are appointing. I mean, a few years ago, there was a bunch of ready-made managers who'd won big European titles to come over here. Pep Guardiola and Antonio Conte and Jose Mourinho and Jurgen Klopp. And it's almost like that source has kind of dried up a bit. And so now clubs are having to take a bit of a chance if if that's not unkind for example Arsenal <coughs> went for Arteta who hadn't been a manager mm. Manchester United went for Ten Hag who hadn't managed in a, a big league Chelsea went for Graham Potter who hadn't managed a big club so these clubs are having to kind of take a bit of a gamble why, why is that source of the kind of guilt-edged Euro top flight managers dried up I think well, I mean part of the reason is those guys have been over here and they've been working for other clubs but I do just think there was quite an exciting breed of manager that came around particularly Klopp and Guardiola emerging mm. at pretty much the same time mm. that doesn't happen often you get that maybe once every two or three decades I would guess and it was very unusual for English football that you know they had the financial power to bring them all over here at the same time in another world maybe Klopp would have gone to Real Madrid for a few years and now English mm. clubs would be looking for him but I just don't think they have that the top level option maybe with the exception of Nagelsmann personally I wouldn't really put him in that category some people would so yeah clubs are taking having to take a bit more of a gamble than they were five six years ago right this attacking philosophy Adrian is that something concerns you the, the, the notion as, as Charlie writes that if if plan A doesn't work with Postacoglu the, the next step is to do plan A again but try and do it better that could be a problem down the line I think Tottenham fans have to be a little bit patient with it uh, during that piece, it, it became evident that that he doesn't always get off to fast starts, and that sometimes it takes a while for for the players to get used to his demands. and And, and slow starts have been a feature, um, but I think they should be enthused by having an attack minded coach. I mean, they've had too many defensive coaches in a row, in my opinion. The sort of life has gone out of the atmosphere inside the stadium. I don't think the fans have enjoyed watching the football. 
for a long, long time. And just seeing something a bit bolder, a bit more enterprising should get them on side. And even if results don't initially go their way and they score goals but concede goals and lose matches, I hope that Spurs fans will will give the guy a chance and, and, and not get on his back too early because... As, as as it was pointed out in that in that piece, which was brilliant, by the way. I know we keep banging on about it, but I really thought it was fantastic, Charlie. I feel like I know Ange Postacoglu very well now, which is the idea of it, I guess. Um, there is only one way of playing, and um, they're going to have to trust that process to steal a phrase from from across North London. Katoi um, Bala, as, as his Greek father. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I, I'm slightly confused by this thing. I mean, Adrian's just said it, but I've heard a few people say it, that, oh, the Tottenham fans will enjoy you know, more attacking football, even if they concede some goals. They've just had a season where they became the first side for about 15 years to score more than 60 and concede more than 60 in a single season. Obviously, you'd rather be conceding fewer goals than that. But they've just seen a, a season of whether you like it or not, yeah. the, the style of football. It wasn't good football, though, was it? It was, it was Harry Kane having an absolutely blinding campaign, wasn't it? <laughs> That's quite enjoyable to watch, isn't it? I mean, I, I, didn't, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I know bad. what you mean. I think it's because it felt like it was by accident rather than design. Mm. There weren't mm. like great attacking plans. It was, it was more, can we just get the ball to Kane and, and hope he does something? <laughs> so only five sides scored more. City, Arsenal, Liverpool, Brighton. Uh, only mm. four sides scored more than Tottenham. So yeah. I don't quite get this idea that they've been playing kind of But you wouldn't have called them an, an attacking team, would you? I, th- I think football? as well, Coxie, a lot of those goals came when they were losing games. So it was more a kind of desperate act mm. of we're two 0 down here. We need to do something. Yeah, you know, you think of is it better to score goals when you're losing or when you're already winning though? Well, I think it's better to score goals if you're one 0 down. It's quite handy to score a goal. Isn't it, it is, but I don't. Th- but I think the sense with Conte wasn't that you know they're going out and imposing themselves on teams. Yeah. They're imposing that they're once two 0 down, thinking shit, we better do something. They don't go out to score loads of goals, but they do when they they, they kind of had they to. sometimes <laughs> had to. Right? Yeah, exactly. What what is uh, do you what do you think uh, Postecoglou's arrival means for the team and the aforementioned Harry Kane and his future? Well, I think there's a huge rebuilding job. They've got a massive squad because Spurs are in a, an odd position. They've got a lot of first team squad players out on loan. They're all going to come back. By the time they do all come back, they've got pushing thirty players all of whom would be considered kind of first-team players. You know, we're not talking about youth youth team players here. So he's got to get rid of so many because, again, with them not being in Europe, they don't need such a big squad. And then they'll want to bring some in. Harry Kane, I I don't think it massively moves the dial, but then I don't think... I, I think that the mistakes Spurs have made in previous appointments, I think part of the reason Mourinho and Conte were appointed was the thought was, well, Harry Kane's going to look at them and be like, wow, we're a big, serious club here. I'm going to sign a new contract because we've got the great Mourinho or the great Conte. He enjoyed working under them, but he didn't sign a new contract. So I, my view is kind of get the team playing well, get them enjoying themselves again, get them f- feeling like they can believe in something. And, may, and that will probably be more persuasive to Kane than a big-name coach. I'm not saying he will sign a new contract. Right. He may well not. Mm. And I think the likelihood is he'll probably go next year on a free. But I don't think any manager that came in, in and of itself, would have persuaded him to stay. Okay. But he'll still be there next season, you think? I, that's my suspicion at the moment. I do think Real, the Real Madrid situation changes things. Mm. Before then, I was very confident he'd stay because I just didn't think anyone would pay the money. Right. But the fact that they've just spent, what, 103 million yeah. euros on Bellingham, does that alter things? Potentially, yeah. But, but it, I think it does come down to, is someone willing to pay a crazy amount of money and I think for a lot of clubs, they'll think, well, we can get them for free next year. Mm. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Very good. 
Okay. Postacoglu then. Overall, broadly speaking, very positive. Yeah, I think so. And there's been a bit of a journey because a week or so ago, the sense on social media anyway was a bit of like, who is this guy? Why are we going for a relative unknown? Mm. But that was also exactly the view two years ago at Celtic and then they were despairing when he left. Yeah, and that Ven- Wenger fella that exactly. you mentioned. Exactly, yeah. Arsene Hu. So I think a week on, most fans, that having become a bit more familiar with him, actually feel a lot more positive about it now. It strikes me that Postacoglu will want to bring in a few more creative players, you know, those sort of midfielders that can play box to box, but drift wide and, and make things happen. And I think Spurs squad is, is a little bit light on those. Mm. So that's just one area to address, but, but there are obviously different holes within that squad. Is he going to call the shots here? Because what, what is the situation, Charlie, with the with the director of football uh, and who who's making the calls on on who they recruit at the minute? Well, that is the other big issue. They one of many big issues, but they don't have a director of football. They obviously the, the plan very much is to bring someone in, and that will be an interesting dynamic because he had a lot of autonomy really at Celtic to do what he wanted recruitment wise. And you look at a lot of the recruitment; it was from Japan, a market he knows well from having managed there. He'll still have a big say. But it won't be this. It's not going to be the same model um, as and when they actually do get a director of football in, which has to be pretty soon because they need to start making signings fairly soon. Mm, indeed. All right. Mentioned uh, Jude Bellingham signing. Oh, he hasn't officially signed yet, but he's on the brink of signing apparently for Real Madrid. Uh, Leo Messi going to Miami. That's been announced this week. Others, meanwhile, going to uh, Saudi Arabia. Benzema, Kante, uh, both moving for just unheard of. Sums in in the week that Saudi Arabia effectively bought golf with the merger of their LIV with the PGA. Is is something similar on the horizon for football? Should given the funds they can throw at this, and given their their willingness to to target football for whatever reasons, is that the way we're heading? Yeah, probably. I think it's going to be interesting how they go about things. I almost feel like they're going to do something slightly different to what others have been doing in terms of investing in leagues rather than just investing in players. But obviously, this is a first step. They seem quite confident of getting the World Cup in 2030 as well, which would be clearly a big deal. So we'll have to see. I think in the short term, I don't think that many people are suddenly going to watch the Saudi League, but I do think it will weaken the bigger European leagues. I mean, this tends to be what happens when you suddenly get a new country chucking money at a project. We saw it with Angie in Russia. We saw it with China five years ago. Mm. Whether those leagues really become particularly respected is questionable, but they do actually end up getting a dozen, couple of dozen players from the Premier League, from La Liga, and it does have an impact. I mean, the Benzema thing's massive, really. Mm. This is arguably, I mean, quite close to the best player in the world, I would say, on current form, which I don't think Ronaldo is. I don't think Ronaldo's in the top 20 players, but Benzema is a, a huge deal. On the subject of China, uh, Colin Miller actually breaking down some of the numbers, but he also makes the point that in China, those were investment agencies who had clubs who were who were looking to try and develop the Chinese national team, but also, I, I guess they're, uh, I'm not sure entirely what they were trying to do, but they were uh, private entities, whereas this is the Saudi state that has effectively nationalised four clubs and just given extraordinary funds for them. Just to break down the numbers a little bit, the biggest salary offered during that kind of China splurge was Oscars. He he was getting um, 23.4 million euros a year, uh, whereas Ronaldo currently is on about 10 times that, 200 million a year. Benzema, similar figures. Kante, who's just gone this week, 100 million. Messi was offered 400 million, we read, 
but turned that down. Uh, Wilfred Zaha's also on their radar. He's only been offered 45 million. I do also think the chance to work with Nuno Espirito Santo is a huge factor in this, and we shouldn't overlook that. For, for, for Benzema and, and Kante, I think that was clearly a, a, a big issue. That's an extraordinary line. So they've got Ronaldo and Benzema reuniting after their Real Madrid days. No, Ronaldo's at a different yeah, club. Different Is club. it a different yeah, yeah. one? Yeah. But Benzema and Kante are at the same one. With and Nuno. that's with Nuno Espirito Santo. Who has just won the league, to be fair to him. All right. Okay. Adrian, you concerned? <sighs> I think you've got to be concerned a little bit on, on, on several fronts. In the short term, hopefully not. Hopefully, that you know, they've just prized one or two of these, these more senior players and... You know, if they want to take the money, they they can go and take the money. You, you can't you can't knock them too much for that. I do think it's quite nice uh, or refreshing in a way that that Lionel Messi has has chosen sort of family lifestyle um, rather than the, than those huge that huge mega bucks deal mm. on offer. He's already taken a huge amount of money from Saudi Arabia, hasn't mm. he, Lionel Messi? True, true. Yeah, but I still think I still think it's it's a positive that he's gone to the MLS in a way. Uh, rather than Saudi Arabia, because that that just strengthens strengthens them even more, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You're going to uh, into Miami, who uh, the previous week had, had had fired Phil Neville, mm. one big name out, another in. That's <laughs> uh, that's a massive deal for MLS. What what about Jude Bellingham choosing Real Madrid? Why was that? Do you think? Well, I think it's an opportunity to be part of what he might consider the biggest club in Europe. I think it's also a very different club from ten years ago, where they tended to sign quite glitzy big names and treat them at times quite badly, whereas now they're investing in younger players. I mean, they've done really well. They've got Camavinga and Schuermeni and now Bellingham. I mean, that could be their midfield best part of the decade, which I wouldn't have said that about Real Madrid 10 years ago because they chopped and changed so much. But they've they've changed their model a little bit. Kroos and Modric and Casemiro are all there together for the best part of a decade, and they've become quite good at succession planning. The question, of course, is, I mean, they didn't expect Benzema to leave. And they're going to have to probably pay quite big money to get someone in who can replace him. So I don't know whether they have the funds to do that as well as bring in Bellingham. But Real Madrid do often seem to uh, find sources of money where you don't expect them to have. <laughs> it's, it's a brilliant story, isn't it? He's still only 19. Yeah. Jude Bellingham, you forget, he's been around for so long. At 19, I was happy to get, you know, an appearance in Arsenal's reserves in the football combination. You know, <laughs> there, here he is. He's he's had four full seasons. I think he's had over 40 appearances um, for, for, for Birmingham and then obviously three seasons with Borussia Dortmund. He's got 24 England caps. He's a, mm. an exceptional player. And for him to be sort of viewed as the future of Real Madrid is is some compliment at his age. And uh, I think he's good enough for it. I really do. I think he's a complete, complete midfield player. And I'm excited to see see what he can do there. Because as, as Coxie rightly says, some of the best players on the planet, some of the best young players on the planet will grow together um, inside the same dressing room there at Real Madrid. And it's going to be quite special, I think, to be a part of that. Yeah, and I do think once you've made the move abroad once, it's easier to do that again. He's obviously comfortable. He knows he can play in another league. Real Madrid are always a hard team to turn down. And from an England perspective, it's really exciting. I mean, we saw how brilliant he was at the World Cup anyway. The idea of him playing with that midfield that Michael talks about is is amazing, really, to think how, just how good he could be, even by the time of next year's Euros. Mm-hmm. Magnificent. 
Jude Bellingham, that deal not yet finalised, but uh, medical set to occur in the coming days. Hey, Adrian, have you got some hot transfer news for us off your machine? Well, it's just popped up on my phone. That, um, oh, yeah. Alexis McAllister has, has completed his move to Liverpool, mm. so they've got their business done. Nice, nice and early. So um, look, it, it looks like a good acquisition, doesn't it? At the price, I mean, it seems quite a low price point. Um, but yeah, I, I think they needed What's to strengthen the their midfield. Well, it, there are conflicting reports between thirty-five or forty-five or fifty-five, depending on who you listen to. I, mm. I guess there's a few add-ons put in there, but they need goals from midfield. They need to bridge that midfield with the attack. Um, they've been a little bit disconnected, basically, for the last few years. I think Liverpool relied so much on getting the ball to those front three and, and letting them wreak havoc. I think that McAllister is that bridge in between, and I, th- I think he'll fit in pretty well there. How's your level of whelm, Michael? Is it over, under, right in the middle? It just seems like quite a sensible transfer for all people concerned, doesn't okay. it? You sound disappointed by that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just... Yeah, it just seems to make sense. I know what you mean. I yeah. want something stupid at this point in the summer. Yeah, yeah, to things <laughs> exactly. Off. Yeah. All right. Well, the, the Saudis are there for that, of course. So, um, yeah. He does seem quite Klopp. I can imagine him fitting really well into what that What do you system. mean by that? He can just do a bit of everything in midfield. He can play deep. He can play high. He's quite tenacious. Mm. He's good technically without being a kind of pure creator. Yeah, it just seems to, seems to make sense to me. All right. Now, season finale awaits... This Saturday in Istanbul, where Manchester City will be playing Inter in the Champions League final. A little bit later on the show, we're going to play you a few minutes from a special two-part podcast that Adam Leventhal recorded in Turkey, uh, telling the story of how that country is recovering from, of course, the horrific earthquakes they suffered earlier this year. Adam, I spoke to families uh, and those who were most affected and also visited Hatayspor, the uh, club that Christian Atsu was playing for before he actually died in the quake. So we'll have a... A moment or two from that at the end of today's show. But next up, let's talk about Saturday's game at the Ataturk. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to the Totally Football Show with James Richardson, sponsored by LifeScore Bet. You can get the latest football betting odds at LifeScoreBet.com. It's over 18s only. Please bet responsibly and be gambleaware.org. Conclusion of the 2022-23 season, 8 o'clock this Saturday. City facing Inter in Istanbul. City, a slight favourite. Opt to have a 74% chance of them winning this game. You recall they haven't lost a single match in this season's competition. They just did Real Madrid 5-1 on aggregate in the semi. Uh, what do you think, Michael? Are Inter's chances 26% or less even? 
I would have guessed less, to be honest. Really? I mean, yeah. I'm going to take Optus numbers ahead of ahead of my guess off the top of my head. Hmm. But seventy four percent seems relatively. That seems like game on to me. I mean, one in <laughs> one in four. Right. Well, one in four is a decent. Mm. All right, decent you you. Percentage. I mean, Charlie's piece was nice, but Michael's was pretty nice too about mm. Simone Inzaghi, the other Inzaghi. Yeah, I mean, he's quite an interesting player. I mean, I must be completely honest. I never yeah. got Simone Inzaghi. No. As a player? No. No. I mean, Pippo, the whole thing about him was he couldn't play football, but he could score goals. Right. Simone, to me, seems he had the same thing, but he couldn't score goals. Right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So, But he was... He once scored four in a Champions League match. It was a preliminary, I, but... Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. But generally speaking, you're absolutely right. He was the less talented. He, he never really did it. He, yeah. His, his scoring record was quite poor, but I find it quite interesting because obviously Guardiola as a manager was this very cultured passing midfielder who found his career ended slightly prematurely because sides didn't want that type of player. Mm. And as a coach, he really tried to build teams that brought back that kind of player. And I almost think Inzaghi's doing the same. There's very few sides who play two up front, right. like two proper strikers. Yeah. And of course, he's got the choice of three. Martinez will definitely start. The choice is Jekyll or Lukaku, very different types of player. But whoever uh, he goes for, it is quite rare. Well, the last side to win the Champions League final with two up front was Milan in 2003. Of course, one of those players was his brother. Wow, which is Pippo. Quite and do you know what? Last time a Premier League side faced a Serie A team in the Champions League final, it was the Italians who won. And who scored both goals? Pippo Inzaghi. Pippo Inzaghi. Yeah. 2007. Exactly, Charlie. I mean, there's all sorts of eerie precedents about mm. this. Yeah. And but, yet City will probably end up winning 2-0. Yeah. <laughs> they, they probably will. I, I, funnily enough, I went into his training ground this last Monday and spoke to Simone Inzaghi. Uh, Pippo wasn't available. Uh, and a, a couple of the players as well. How was the mood? But that was the thing. I mean, Simone's just this kind of affable and slightly vacant chap. He... he <laughs> He might as well be the bloke who was putting out the cones or something. He's just that low-key mm. about the whole thing. And he was he was perfectly pleasant. In no way seemed perturbed by the fact that he had the biggest game of his career coming up and that he, his side was massively predicted to, to, to fail horribly in it. Uh, and the players were really relaxed as well. Uh, a chair to be who's had this incredible journey uh, from kind of being effectively chased out of Lazio by the, the fans there to becoming the kind of rock at the heart of this amazing defence. In their six knockout games after the group stage, they've kept f- clean sheets in five of them. They also got through a group with Bayern and, and Barcelona. So mm. they're, they're no idiots, Inter. But uh, yeah, just generally seem really, really relaxed. Another of the players is uh, Federico Di Marco, who when they won the treble was actually in the stands. He's always been an Inter fan. Mm. And he was saying basically, yeah, they call this club crazy Inter, Pazze Inter, because you, you never know what you're going to get with them. And if I, I don't think there's a, a, there is an Italian side that would be considered kind of at a level with Man City. I know that Napoli performed magnificently at times this season, but Inter's ability to do the unexpected, both for good and for bad, I think is a, a major factor here, as is that defensive record and, and and the talent of those those people up front because Lautaro Martinez, although he had a really patchy season and not a great World Cup, has really hit form of late. And when he and, and uh, Lukaku, and to be fair, him and Barella, who's a player also worth keeping yeah. an eye on, when they combine, it can be really, really dangerous. I mean, they've just got incredible kind of forward running, I mm. think, as well, with Dumfries down the, down the right. I don't think... And DiMarco in, on the other side as well. And Nobody's DiMarco. got more assists than him in the Champions League this season. I mean, I don't think they are... I wouldn't necessarily call them a defensive side. I think they're going to be defensive necessarily this 
this uh, weekend. But they can play that way. I mean, they are the kind of side who who just have the ball in defence, suddenly quite a long ball into attack, and they kind of have like five on five in quite a kind of direct break. So mm. um, certainly wouldn't write them off. I just think City are a very good side. Yeah. And I don't think Guardiola is going to do anything crazy as has been the case in the past. Yeah, but when, <laughs> when was the last time he did anything crazy? Well, the 2021 final. Yeah. That's probably... But that's still fairly recent. Okay. Um, you know, the last final but one. Adrian? Yeah, no, look, I think yeah, for the reasons you've outlined, Inter have a, have a chance. They really do. Um, they've, they've got a solid defence. I was looking at, at their record under Inzaghi. You know, they concede less than one goal per game over over his tenure. He's got, a sixty, I think, a 64% win ratio as well. He, he's a very, very smart manager. He's a good cup manager, mm. as Michael's point, been pointing out. I, th- I think he's won seven cups, hasn't he? He's won three. So he's had eight cup Italians. finals, yeah. and he lost the first one with Lazio against Juventus, and has won the next seven cup finals. In terms of knockout football with Inter, he's had twenty games, and he's only lost one of them. That was against uh, Liverpool at San Siro in the last sixteen last oh, year. Yeah. And in the second leg, Inter went to Anfield and won one nil there, and that was against a, I mean, a proper yeah, yeah. Liverpool side. So they had a red card, didn't they? Inter? They did. They did. Mm-hmm. I mean, he can I, set up a team then, can't he? You know, he's obviously got good game plans, a good match play, match play manager. I was looking at, at, at some of the, the metrics as well going forward. No one actually in Serie A had more shots from open play than Inter Milan. No one scored more goals in open play than Inter Milan. So they've got that capability. Obviously, a lot of that is to do with the, the fact that they've got three quality strikers and, and, and two excellent wing backs. Um, I was interested. To, I'm interested to see how City cope uh, with Inter's left hand side or. or Maybe more pertinent, pertinently, whether Inter are as ambitious uh, as they might be down that left-hand side. Because DiMarco hmm. has put in a lot of crosses this year in the Champions League. Ke- uh, Kevin De Bruyne is the only player that's delivered more. And of course, Bastoni from, from left-side centre-back loves to get forward as well. And no, and this is an amazing stat because he's a central defender. But Bastoni has produced more accurate open-play crosses than anyone else in the wow. Champions League this season, 12 of them. So they've got to be careful, I think, of uh, City, of those two sort of raiding down that left-hand side because they don't, don't need to get beyond Carl Walker, who's obviously, we know he's, he's, he's a massive quickie, but that's not really what Inter need to do to provide chances in this game. So I think they'll, they'll definitely look to use that avenue. Mm. I mean, I think all things considered, it would be probably the biggest upset in a Champions League final since Chelsea beat Bayern Munich in 2012. But that happened. It did happen, yeah. <laughs> I mean, generally, I mean, the the last you know two years ago didn't go to form. Generally, Champions League finals do, and the team that the favourite does win. But yeah, that th- there is a chance. I, I do think it would be given. It's not even about Inter. It's just where City are. Like that's right. why I think it, that's more why I think it would be such a huge surprise. They yeah. look so imperious. But th- they might last more than twelve seconds. You think Inter? <laughs> yes, you would hope so. Fingers crossed. Do you, you've all seen uh, the, the the remarkable story of what happened last time Pep faced Simone Inzaghi. Two thousand and one, Pep was playing for Brescia, and Simone Inzaghi was in his spell. I think flanking Marcelo Salas for for Lazio. Lazio won five one. Uh, Inzaghi scored one, set up another. Pep didn't, but the next day Pep tested positive for I think Nandrolone, uh, Nandrolone. Yeah. Yeah. and uh, yeah had a doping ban. Wow. So, yeah. It was very popular in that season. In Nandrolone Italy. was huge. Well, he, yeah. He'd just come from La Liga and I think the feeling in Serie A was that 
okay, now we'd because they felt they had proper. There were a lot of players who would who would suddenly turn up uh, positive after arriving in, in Italy. Edgar Davids, I think, was another. Yeah, Davids, yep, Stam yeah. as well. Okay. Yep, Stam. Yeah, they had. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, Michael, in your piece, you, you're talking about the fact that Simone Inzaghi uh, plays with two up front, and you make the interesting point that of the teams that have beaten Manchester City this season in games that matter, and there not been many, Brentford are one, and that's exactly what they do. Yeah, I thought their win at the Etihad was probably the best team performance I saw all season in the Premier League. I think it got forgotten quite quickly because it was the last weekend mm. before the World Cup and moved on to bigger and better things. But they were brilliant. I mean, the direct balls up to, to Tony. I thought Tony was absolutely fantastic in that game. And of course, Brentford, who can play a couple of different systems, played 3-5-2 in that game. They also played 3-5-2 in the return game, so they did the double over City, albeit City side who'd won the league and were focusing on other things. But I do imagine that Inter will have had a, a look at some of those displays because, um, yeah, I, I think this probably Watch is the ben right... me on Monday Night Football. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think this is, in both senses, this might be the shape to blunt City because I think at the other end, what teams often struggle with is the runs from De Bruyne and Gundogan into the channels, like between the fullbacks and centre-backs in a four. But if you play a back five, in theory, they have got the five players to cope with that. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's going to be a few areas of concern, obviously, but I do think, in a way, into might be quite well suited to this task more so than I I kind of agree with you more so than Napoli Napoli mm. a better side but I think they'd play City at their own game and basically get beaten whereas Inter I feel might just frustrate them and blunt them and maybe score one on the break 26% you see yeah maybe I'd go 27 actually I'll maybe take it 27 <laughs> Adrian any, any thoughts on City we, we've spoken a lot about the Nerazzurri yeah, look, they're, they're, they're a very special team, aren't they? We, we know about that. I've loved the the tactical innovation with the 3-2-4-1. Obviously, he's brought that in this season. I think he's used it 12 times. Pep Guardiola, obviously, we've got used to them being a 4-3-3 team of sorts. But yeah, having Stones uh, in there alongside Rodri has really solidified them. They've got five quality defensive players and it's made them less vulnerable to counters and it makes them a much more viable proposition to to win the Champions League than in previous seasons. It's why they got past Bayern and Real Madrid, who, who who provided you know testing moments in all of those games, but ultimately fell short. So now I think they've improved massively, Man City. But and there is a but away from the Etihad this season, they haven't been that special. Look at their record against the the top nine in the Premier League and away from home. And they only won one, and that was at Arsenal. Um, painfully, I was there to see it. But they drew three, and they lost four of the others. And in the Champions League, their last five away games, they've drawn. They, you know, they drew, drew, drew in Dortmund, Leipzig, I think Copenhagen, albeit with 10 men. They drew, even though they went through well against Bayern and yeah. Real Madrid. They didn't win there. So away from the Etihad, they've not been that full of goals. They've not won that many matches. So, look, I'm, I'm just trying to make it sound like this might be a really competitive <laughs> affair because um, I think as a neutral, we all want it to be a really good game, a tight game and not just a procession. Um, but there are, well, I wouldn't describe them as a red flag, but but it's it's a pinkish flag for, for City, that, that away form, I'd say. They also weren't that good in the cup final, were they? I mean, didn't really create many chances. Two, two good goals from Gundogan outside the box, but I thought Manchester United blunted them quite well, really, last weekend. Hmm. And the last manager in a live game, discounting that dead rubber against Brentford, to beat Pep City was an Italian, Christian Stellini. <laughs> right. With, <laughs> right. With Conte right. pulling the strings back home. So, yeah. you know, 
that's some inspiration there for Inzaghi. Yeah. I can't remember that. It was 1-0. I mean, as happens every year, City lost at Spurs. Away. <laughs> Any lessons that Inter should draw from Spurs, yeah. do you think? Uh, well, school goals when you need to. Back three, wasn't it? They was had back a back three? three and they had Eric Dyer stepping forward from that back three to, to almost man-mark Bernardo Silva at points. And it did actually work really well. And I think caught City a bit by surprise because Spurs had done literally the same thing every game all season. So for them to make any sort of tactical tweak... Uh, was probably something that Pep didn't see coming. Right, okay. Well, there you go. Eight o'clock on Saturday. For all their worries on the road, just a reminder that City haven't actually lost a game uh, anywhere in the Champions League this season. And they're the first team to get to the final without a defeat, it, with this format of home and away in the semi-final at least, since uh, Man United in 07-08. The Moscow final. Mm. Mm. The John Terry final. Yeah. Nice. Very good. We'll be reacting to what does happen in Istanbul on Sunday. Sunday pod. And then we'll be shutting up shop in a very real sense. Uh, on Sunday, we might mention actually what happens on Thursday, but probably won't be mentioning uh, what happens on Sunday regarding City Air going up and, and, and going down. Uh, which is probably a little bit of a niche content, but just because inter-Italian. Just say, today, there's the City of B playoff final, huh? which I see Claudio Ranieri trying to get Cagliari back up. Good old Claudio. Against Bari, who are the other Aurelio De Laurentiis southern success. But if they get up, he'll have to sell either them or, or Napoli. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was a Ranieri playing yesterday for hmm? there was, there was a Ranieri, Ranieri yeah. Florentino, wasn't there? Yeah, I assume no relation to either him or the the, the, the Crown Prince of Monaco. No, mm. no. Uh, and then on Sunday there's a they're having a playoff. They're having a playout in Syria, which is brand new this season. They went tell you what this year, if two teams finish level on points, whatever the goal difference head to head, just make them play an extra game. I don't know why. They used to do that back in the day, didn't they? For they did. European places and stuff. Yeah, they, yeah. in the nineties, they yeah. did it in two thousand and five, which I'd completely forgotten. Okay. Um, Palmer against Bologna, I think it was two thousand and five. Anyway, what's that, listener? You're not that bothered. All right then. <laughs> <laughs> All right then. We'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up. If you haven't caught the Intertotally final, which was live streamed at two p.m. on on Thursday then run across to our YouTube channel, which is called something like the Totally at the Totally Football Show. And if you don't want to watch it on YouTube, then it'll be available as a special standalone podcast, uh, which will be out on Friday. It is, producer Charlie, in video, uh, taking on Giant Killings' Tom Williams, the man who put out both Adrian Clark, albeit in a in a playoff <laughs> with an asterisk <laughs> by it <laughs> and Michael Cox most dramatically I would argue in the semi-final yeah. though there was some controversy over the, the questions there I think Michael no that's fine I, I didn't get right? them right yeah and I haven't been desperately asking for a third fourth playoff like Jules did a couple of years ago when he lost in the semi-final either I'd like to point that out <laughs> very very dignified of you alright excellent well I hope you enjoy that if you haven't already listener and many thanks for being with us Today, a reminder that coming up next, we're going to be playing you a little bit of a little taster of Adam Leventhal's two-part documentary series about Turkey and their uh, efforts to recover from the terrible earthquakes that took place there 
in February. For now, though, it's many, many thanks to Adrian, Charlie, Michael, special guest producer Jesse, and Benji earlier on. And you, listener, will see you Sunday. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Discover bonus video content by searching for The Totally Football Show on YouTube and see the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an athletic media company production and sponsored by LiveScore Bet. Get the latest football betting odds at livescorebet.com. It's over 18s only. Please bet responsibly and be gambleaware.org. Well, I've come now to the site of the Renaissance residence apartment block. And this is where Christian Atsu died during the earthquake. At the moment, there are piles of rubble around me. And there are reminders of the lives and of the people that lived in the apartment block all around me. There are a pair of high-heeled shoes, a, a wicker basket that would have maybe sat in a, in a living room, and a child's Ugg boot just, uh, just down in front of me, a, a sofa cushion. It is a, a very sobering sight. Initial reports soon after the earthquake had suggested that he had been found, and that was a, a cruel twist for those connected to him, his friends and his, his family, his young children as well. False hope was given and he was discovered then, 12 days afterwards. The club's sporting director, Tanner Suvut, also died at the Renaissance residence. His body was later recovered, but not everyone was found in the rubble, including a good friend of my guide, Zafir. We worked together, Mehmet. He was only 23 years old. He's just graduated university. He was looking for a job, real job. But in the meantime, he was coming with me and helping me. Usually he's living in Samanda, which is close over here. It's about 30 kilometers from here. But an earthquake night, and he came and visited his girlfriend. Uh, unfortunately, he died here. I called him up uh, after the earthquake. You know, it's about two days later. No one is answering the phone. And uh, I realized that in WhatsApp and uh, show, show the WhatsApp in the fifth, just before earthquake. And uh, unfortunately, uh, they they weren't able to find uh, his body. He was very cheerful and uh, always laughing and uh, always making joke, but uh, he's not here anymore. Perhaps the most recognizable name, aside from Atsu to world football audiences, is the team's head coach, Volkan Demirel. Fenerbahce goalkeeper for 17 years and a former Turkey international. Oh, what a save by Volkan! Well, he's just capped a wonderful performance now, the Turkish goalkeeper, by keeping out a Cristiano Ronaldo penalty.
a man known for being fearless, powerful and dominant on the football pitch. He would become the face of the earthquake in this region after his desperate plea for help on social media. Nothing was working. No phone, no Wi-Fi. Everything stopped. Our last chance to let people know what was happening was social media. So I did this video. But I didn't know if it had been sent or not. When I was a footballer, I always fought for success. Then I was fighting again, because people were looking to me for inspiration. After the earthquake and until my video, it seemed like nobody was coming to Hatay. No police, no fire. Demirel was dealing with life and death situations. Just a few hours earlier, he was thinking about team selection and whether to give Christian Atsu the chance that he desperately wanted. For two months, he had not played because of injury. But in the week building up to the game, he came to my office and said that he was ready to play. I told him that's good, but he wasn't ready to start. In the last 10 minutes, we decided to put him on. In the last minute, we got a free kick and I was telling him to cross it. But he told his teammates he was going to shoot and he scored a beautiful free kick. I was so happy for him because he had been out for a while. He was a good player, but most importantly a good man, a good character. He helped everyone. He would always give money to staff. He had a very big heart. After the match, he said to me, I want to keep playing. The last time I saw him, he was happy, and then he was gone. I always analyzed the games, so I went to sleep late. Soon after I had got to bed, I felt the building starting to shake. Normally, when we've had tremors or earthquakes, before it shakes from side to side, this time the floor was going up and down. Not one, two, three, or even a hundred people. It felt like it was everybody. People were screaming and crying. People without clothes, people without limbs, everything. It was chaos. My wife went straight to my nine-year-old daughter. I went to our five-year-old daughter. They were so scared, they didn't know what was going on. The earthquake lasted one minute and 40 seconds, which is a very long time. All I could do was lay above my daughter in the plank position. If the wall fell down, I wanted to protect her and for it to fall onto me, not her. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.